We turn in God's inspired word this evening to 1 Peter chapter 5. First Peter chapter five. The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed, feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder, yea, all of you be subject one to another, and be clothed with humility, for God resisteth the proud, and giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour, whom resist, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Jesus, Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect establish, strengthen, settle you. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother unto you, as I suppose I have written briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God wherein ye stand. The church that is at Babylon, elected together with you, saluteth you, and so doth Marcus my son, Greet ye one another with a kiss of charity. Peace be with you all that are in Christ Jesus. Amen. The text to which I call your attention this evening is 1 Peter 5, verse 10. But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect establish, strengthen, settle you. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, in Peter's first epistle, he considers the life of the Christian from the viewpoint of our being pilgrims and strangers in the midst of this world. We are sojourners whose home is not here, not where we currently live. Our home is in heaven. But God has called us to sojourn for a little while on this earth. And this earth 
you know as a valley of the shadow of death. Death that we brought upon ourselves by our condemnation in Adam. God in mercy has saved us from the bondage of death through his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. But while we sojourn, we still experience the misery that belongs to this earthly journey. In many ways and to different degrees, we experience the suffering of this earthly pilgrimage. Every one of us. In this epistle of hope, however, Peter points out that this suffering is appointed by God with a view to our salvation. In the way of suffering, we are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. So that the suffering of this present time must be conducive to strengthen and perfect us who are the children of God. And that's accomplished by the grace and power of God who has called us to his glory through suffering. So irresistible is that grace and power of God that nothing can withstand it or hinder his power. In the preceding context, the apostle speaks of our adversary, the devil, who hates God and hates the church and who hates you who are members of the church. And that adversary is powerful. And against him you must watch with all diligence. But against this opposition, I would have you hear the words of your text, this text tonight, because here's the promise of God that he will never leave you nor forsake you and that your suffering will certainly preserve you in the, so that you persevere to the end. This 10th verse is often considered a prayer on the part of the apostle that Christians might amidst all their struggles, be made perfect, established, strengthened, and settled. And there could be no doubt that was the Apostle's prayer for the church, as it's my prayer for you, and, and I trust your prayer for me as well. But a closer consideration of these words, especially in the original, show us that this verse is not a prayer, it's a promise. We have not a request that God would bestow certain blessings upon tempted, struggling, afflicted Christians, but we have here a sure declaration that God will bestow them upon you and upon me and upon all them that believe. So we must read the text this way. But the God of all grace who hath called us into, unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a little while, shall make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. That's a promise. 
And that promise is sure because the one who makes that promise is God. There's no question about its realization. And it's well that we take note of that tonight. The Word of God comes to us in different forms. Sometimes we hear that Word in the form of an admonition, sometimes in the form of comforting instruction, other times in the form of a promise. And when we hear that Word, we have to receive it with a proper attitude. So that when that Word comes to us, in the form of instruction, that profitable word of God, we have to receive that instruction with humility and obey. When we are admonished, we have to bow before the admonition. When the profitable word of God comes to us in the form of instruction, we receive that instruction in humility, because God speaks in. And when it comes to us in the form of a promise, we're called to lay hold of that promise by faith. So I call your attention to this text this evening with the theme, God fitting us unto glory. We notice a rich promise, a particular gift, and a divine guarantee. The promise given us in this text is essentially this. God will perfect you. God will perfect you. Today, two young women and a young man have joined us in this confession and in this hope. God will perfect us. To perfect means to fit for something. It refers to the work of a master craftsman molding and shaping his work, fitting it exactly for the purpose that he has determined. And by this work, the inspired apostle likens God himself to a master artisan, even as the apostle Paul speaks in Romans chapter 9, calling attention to the inspired prophets of old. And so we read in Jeremiah 18, where the Lord leads Jeremiah to the potter's house to see the potter molding and shaping a vessel on the potter's wheel. And we read in Jeremiah 18, verses 5 and 6, Then the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, O house of Israel, cannot I do with you as this potter, saith the Lord? Behold, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in mine hand. In that sense, God promises that He will perfect you who believe. And the question then arises, unto what will he mold and shape and perfect us? And the wonderful answer is, 
unto eternal glory by Christ Jesus. That's the goal toward which he is molding and shaping us into which he will fit us. The God of all grace has called us to his eternal glory that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You and I have been called by God in order that we be partakers of his glory. The state to which the Christian is called isn't a poor and sad state of affairs. It's nothing less than eternal glory. It is to partake of God's goodness, radiated through us and in us into all eternity. That's God's glory. That doesn't mean we become like him as God, but it means we shall be glorious, filled with his glory, and we shall be holy. We shall be righteous, As he is righteous, we shall know him as he is. God will give us all the pleasures at his right hand. That eternal glory is the reality that we lay hold of by that faith, which is God's gift to us. The world judges you and me to be poor. We miss out on all the fun. The ungodly think that it's strange when we do not follow their pursuits of pleasure or of gain. They don't know the infinite gain that is ours in Christ. The world sees our sufferings, sufferings which are not unlike theirs. They see what we leave behind when we leave this earth in death, but without the eyes of faith, they do not see that for which we hope, nor that which we shall receive at the end of our suffering. It's glory, eternal glory. All that is called glorious or or that is called glory in the earth is no more than a name. Men are naturally desirous of glory but they're ignorant of the true nature of glory. They seek it where it is not. As Solomon says of riches, they set their heart on that which is not. The vain glories of this present time have no substance, no reality, but the glory which is promised us and which belongs to us who are in Christ Jesus, is that which is true, that which bears weight. In fact, in the Hebrew language, the language of the Old Testament, the word for glory signifies weight. And the Apostle Paul seems to allude to that when he writes in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17 of our eternal weight of glory. This glory weighs down all the labor and all the suffering so far that they're crushed under the weight of it. And in eternity, we shall experience those sufferings no more. 
and then add the adjective eternal, eternal glory, and that to which God fits us is incomprehensible in its magnificence. Look at how men pursue the glory of this present world and how we can even get caught up in those pursuits. There would be so much more reason for it if the things of this world were lasting, if they stayed with us so we could continually enjoy them, but look how quickly they pass away. They pass away and their glory passes away. Even our life on this earth is but a vapor, as James writes in his epistle. But the eternal glory to which you and I are being fitted according to the promise of God is, it just swallows up all the grandeur of this world. That glory belongs to us in Christ Jesus, as is our confession. God has given us that glory in Christ. And though he gives us a foretaste of that glory during our earthly life as Christians, he's fitting us unto the perfection of that glory that awaits us. That's his rich promise. The accomplishment of his promise is worked in a threefold way. God shall fit you unto glory by establishing you. To be established is to stand firm, immovable. Sometimes, beloved, we might wonder about ourselves. When we consider the future and the increased suffering because of the tribulation that awaits the church on this earth, it's easy to lose courage. But God meets our natural apprehensions with the promise, I will establish thee. I will keep you from falling. God's promise to you and to me is this. Be sober, be vigilant, be faithful, I will strengthen you. And the result is you shall be established. Because the Lord is faithful who shall establish you and preserve you from the evil one. Furthermore, he shall strengthen you. God will fit you unto eternal glory because he shall strengthen you. In us there is no strength. We walk as pilgrims and strangers in the world, exposed to all the attacks of the devil and his host. It's the purpose of those enemies to destroy the church. Also by destroying us and our connection to the church. You see, when you make confession of faith, there's a very real sense in which your battle of faith just begins. And you will find in your own experience that the more we attempt to walk close to God, the more the powers of darkness attempt to break that bond that we have with Christ and his church. 
The other side of this, of course, is that when church members walk away from God and his word, the devil spends less time pursuing them. He doesn't have to. But the closer the church walks to his word, the closer you and I walk to the scriptures, the more the devil will show us his power and the more vehement will be his attempts to destroy us. That's the way he works. There's a world full of inventions seeking to destroy the people of God. You experience them. You see them every day. All the philosophy of the world, the carnal pleasures of the world, the world's treasures, all the technological devices that consume our time and sometimes us, seduce us from the ways of God. And over against those things, we have no strength in ourselves. How rich then is this promise of God, I will strengthen you. In your spiritual conflict, he will enable you not only to stand, but to withstand the power of the devil, not only to keep your ground, but to press on. To press on. Not only in defense of yourself, but press on to the attack of the enemy by the word of God. He will, and his promise is sure, tear apart the efforts of his enemies to subdue you. Even bringing them to nothing by the effectual operation of his spirit in your hearts, through the means of his word and the preaching of his word. You shall stand strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, according to his promise. The promise given in the last verses of Isaiah 40 shall be your own experience. He gives power to the faint. To them who have no might, he increaseth strength, so that even though the youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall, even so they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles, they shall run and not be weary, they shall walk and not so shall Christ accomplish his promise to fit you unto glory. But still more, God shall also settle you. And there the idea is that he will settle you as a building is firmly settled upon a solid foundation. Well, that means you have to be settled upon a firm foundation, don't you? And that you also confessed this evening when you acknowledged the doctrine contained in the Old and New Testaments and in the articles of the Christian faith and taught here in this Christian church to be the true and complete doctrine of salvation. 
The truth of God's word is the only foundation upon which God will settle us. It's the great promise of God to settle his people upon the foundation, upon the rock, who is Christ. The design of Satan is to drive you away off that foundation. He would come with mighty blows, attempting to move you off the foundation of the truth as it is in Jesus, to get you to settle for less, eventually to wander farther and farther from the truth. But God will render all those attempts useless by preparing you for them and strengthening you in the face of them. Not only that, but the trials that you and I face in this life are but means in the hands of our Heavenly Father to settle us more firmly upon that foundation. You realize that there is in each one of us a certain desire for independence. Probably true most especially in our youth. We like to think we can go our own way and do our own thing, not be dependent upon others, parents, and so on. But you know, when we do that, when we live that way, we really are seeking spiritual independence apart from Christ. And that's foolish. Because that's to build castles in the air. Imagine buildings with no foundation. Never will we find safety and peace of soul and stability until we are driven from everything in ourselves to see in Jehovah our strength, our salvation. And few things are used in our experience, used by God to settle us on the rock who is Christ, than the afflictions which arise out of the attacks of the evil one. God often strengthens our faith by those things which were meant to overthrow it. He often increases our holiness and comfort by those events that were meant to throw us into guilt and misery. And so we sing with the psalmist in Psalm 119, verse 71, It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. Learn them not just intellectually, but with the knowledge of faith, of personal experience and conviction. This rich promise is a particular gift. It's not given to everyone. 
This is no universal promise. It's no indiscriminate promise. It's a promise to you whom God has called into his eternal glory in Christ Jesus. We preach the gospel promiscuously. But the promise is not general. The promise is particular. God will perfect you whom he has called. The text says that God has called us unto that glory in Christ Jesus. That's a fact. And therefore the calling referred to here is the effectual calling of God. It's the powerful word by which he has called us out of darkness and into the light. The calling referred to here is not to be confused with the mere preaching of the gospel, This calling indeed comes through the gospel and by means of gospel preaching, but the calling that Peter speaks about is not that calling which is proclaimed promiscuously. When we preach, our preaching is promiscuous. We don't hesitate to say to anyone present, in accord with the particular text that we preach, repent and believe. It's not our business, nor our concern, nor our ability to know the heart of a man before proclaiming that call to him. But the calling which belongs to this promise is a calling which God alone can make. And when the calling is, come into the glory that is in Christ Jesus, no one can resist that calling. In other words, this calling may be likened to the calling of God in creation when he said, let there be light. No more than light could fail to appear at that calling of God. No more can anyone whom God has called into glory resist that call. Because this calling is that which comes not in word merely, but in power with the Holy Spirit and with much assurance. This is a call that goes much deeper than the ear. It's a word spoken to the heart. This is a call that the Holy Spirit works powerfully so that the object of this call cannot choose but to follow Jesus and yet freely and willingly chooses to follow him and to receive all his benefits. So when it comes to the words of this promise, the apostle says, this is the promise to you who have been called. The church elect in Christ Jesus is called into eternal glory by Christ Jesus. We're called unto that glory. Because Christ has called us, has been called himself into that glory as the head of his church. And so we are taught in Ephesians 2 and other passages that when our Lord Jesus Christ arose from the dead, 
ascended into heaven and received a place at the right hand of God, God called us and all his elect into his divine glory. In the most literal sense of the word, the whole church was called into glory when Christ was glorified. Paul writes to the Ephesians, we sit in heavenly places in Christ. And yet we must say more because after all that seems rather abstract to us who are still earthly. The fact is that glory that is ours in Christ Jesus is our possession even now. Our life is the resurrection life of Christ. The life of the glory of God. We have heard the call of God's grace. We've understood it. We are constrained to comply with it. And by this call in the life of the resurrected Christ, we have entered into the enjoyment of all the other blessings that are in him. So our life of eternal glory has begun. It's a spiritual reality. And what shall we receive by way of this promise of God is not something new. It will be the perfection of that which is already ours in Christ Jesus. More, this particular gift is given to you who have been called, but who now walk in the midst of suffering. It's God's purpose that we shall enter into the perfection of his eternal glory after we have suffered a while. Because so we shall taste that life as we never could otherwise. That suffering comes in different forms, many different forms in different ways. You might not have experienced a lot of suffering yet. You might have experienced some suffering, or you might face trials in your life daily. But every one of us suffers and will continue to suffer. Some suffer from infirmities of the body, some from infirmities of the mind, others from the sorrow of bereavement, others suffer from various attacks of the devil and the onslaught of temptation. We all have suffered from the consequences of our sins, whether those consequences be something specific and concrete or the smiting of our conscience and sorrow before God. But the suffering that is ours on the way to glory is the suffering as the people of God. That is, God leads us in the way of suffering to see him as the God of all glory. 
That also belongs to his promise. The church is a wonderful work of art. And God himself is the master artisan. God fits the church for eternal glory. He fits us, each of us. A popular toy for little children in the past, that rather large ball or geometric shape with many different shapes sized and shaped holes in it. That toy is designed to develop the hand-eye coordination and other skills of the child as, as the child figures out which shapes go into which hole. God doesn't need to figure out which hole we fit into. He shapes us to fit into his eternal glory. He does that throughout our life, molding us for the place he has appointed for us. He fits us in that entire organism of his church. He also fits us for that suffering. He will fit you for the suffering that lies in your earthly pathway. And through that suffering, he will fit you for glory. He will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able to bear, but will with that temptation give you a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. But let's remember, too, those sufferings are limited in duration. How inconceivably small they are in comparison to eternal glory. We may well remember that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. You realize that's our confession when we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. The things which are seen are temporal. The things which are not seen are eternal. Now the Lord says, His promise shall not fail. He will surely bring it to pass. He is the God of all grace. And that God is the God of all grace means that the one magnificent grace of God becomes manifold in, in tremendous variety. There's the grace of regeneration, the, the grace of calling, the grace of conversion, the grace of faith, the grace of repentance given to us, the grace of forgiveness of our sins, the grace of sanctification, the grace of glorification, 
If you are in sorrow, there's the grace of God to comfort you. If you are in trouble, there's his grace to deliver you. If you are in darkness, there is his grace to lead you into his light. He's the fountain of all grace. And therefore, we need not be afraid. He will surely fit us into his eternal glory. You can never say to God, the battle's too great. I'm not going to survive. You can't say to God, I had to walk in that sin. God is the God of all grace. He's called you. And that calling also, to that calling also belongs this. You draw your life out of Him. By faith you draw your life out of Him. He has promised to to make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. And to that promise belongs also this. You lay hold of His promise. This promise carries with it the guarantee of Him who speaks it. The divine guarantee. God declares what He will do. He can do it because He's infinitely powerful and wise. He's given to carrying out what He has said Because he's good and filled with loving kindness toward his people in Christ. But more, he will do it because he is faithful. What he has spoken is true. He cannot lie. He's not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said it, and will he not do it? Hath he promised it, and will he not make it good? Christ says in Matthew 24, verse 35, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. Believe it. Amen. Heavenly Father, work in us by thy grace. Work in these young adults who have confessed their faith today, but work in us all by thy grace that we may continually and in ever-increasing fervor lay hold of thy word by faith and believe thee as thou dost reveal thyself as working perfectly in our own lives and in thy church. And so perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle us for thy name's sake. In Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.